2: Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folkham.
1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the podcast where we discuss issues in medicine and crop biology and uh, their ties with biotechnology and ways that we can use new technology and innovations to benefit the human experience. And today our topic is cheese, and uh, in particular, the fact that 95% of cheese is containing a GMO enzyme, and the bacteria that make it. And along with me today to help me uh, talk about this is Coven Synapathy. Hi, Coven.
3: Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm from Wisconsin, so I'm excited about this.
1: That's right. You know, you need to have... It seemed only appropriate to have a cheese head in the... (laughs) <laughs> but, but you're not just a cheesehead. Uh, you know, Coven, she's the director of Mammoth. She's a frequent columnist or a writer for Forbes Online. Uh, she contributes to uh, Grounded Parents um, and also was one of the central authors of The Fear Babe, a book that really dissected Vani Hari's Glass House. Um, that came out last October. Um, what else did I leave out? You do a lot. Science communication and just uh, science advocacy in many ways. Um, what else did I forget?
3: Um, I'm one of the science moms in the upcoming Science Moms movie, a documentary about moms who raise their kids with evidence and facts rather than fear and hype.
1: Ooh, that sounds pretty good. Uh, who's doing that?
3: Uh, it's, it's being made by a couple, actually, Natalie and Brian Newell, but um, some other well-known science communicators are, uh, are among the science moms, including Anastasia Bodnar, uh, Alison Bernstein, Layla Khadirai, and others.
1: Wow, that's really cool. I mean, especially because you just named some of my famous people to follow and write in social media, uh, and uh, really, that, that, that really sums up some, a great group of science mobs.
3: Yes, we're very excited, and the trailer is, is up right now, and it's pretty funny and informative, if I do say so myself.
1: <laughs> you did say so yourself.
3: <laughs> I, I did.
1: What about, uh, so how's things going with The Fear Babe? How was uh, that book received, and did you get any blowback from, uh, from the subject of the book?
3: Yeah, you know, we got some blowback if you look at the reviews on Amazon. Usually when you see uh such a divide between five star and one and one star reviews, you know, it's uh because of blowback, but um yeah, so those one-star reviews are interesting if you want to check them out. But overall, we've been pretty happy with the, with the reception. You know, It's what we wanted to do with the book, which we don't think is about Vani Hari per se. What it does is it uses her as one of the biggest uh, misinformation vectors of our time as a framework to not only dissect some of the most prominent food myths, but also examine why they continue to pro- proliferate despite evidence against them. And we, we kind of wanted it to be a, almost an inoculation for, for people who read it against misinformation, to arm them with a misinformation radar. And, um, and some of the reviews we've gotten and feedback we've gotten have shown that it's, it's doing that uh, in a slow and steady way.
1: Yeah, I thought it was especially powerful and and really does show very clearly, as you say, it's it's not necessarily, it's not an ad hominem on her so much, but it does critically analyze the claims that she's made and how it fits into a bigger framework of misinformation and who should we trust and, and how people are manipulated. And uh, she just got uh, 2,707 pages of my email the other day, uh, Monday morning or last week, whenever it was, she received all of my information. Um, because I criticized her, and you know when she came to my university, and uh, I'm sitting here, literally, um, you know, my heart beating out of my chest, uh, the anxiety you get when you hand 2,700 pages of email that aren't that yeah. there's nothing in there, but yet knowing that they will manufacture a story around what is in there uh, to really try to harm my 30 year reputation as a public scientist, and it's really unfort- unfortunate.
3: It's it's sad, and I hope that I, I believe that the reasonable uh, part of of readers or or society will will understand uh, who is in the right here.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of hope that the reasonable part of her uh, thinks about this twice. And you know, it, I keep thinking, and I'm probably nuts to think so, but I I do try to hope that people have some higher angels here and that they consider the that what what happens when you attack a public researcher uh, when the thing came out about me in um, uh, last December about harassing uh, Rachel Parent in Canada, which is completely insane. I've had nothing but nice things to say about her and, and, and feel sad for her, if anything, and yet I was uh, all but hung up as a child molester in that one article by that author on Global Canada. And... Guess who doesn't get to give talks at the grade schools anymore in Gainesville, Florida?
3: Oh, boy. Yeah, it is really sad about Rachel because I think a, a number of people have reached out to her in, in as tactful a way as possible, and um, and those people are blocked. And I really don't know if that's her or if that's someone else influencing her, and it's unfortunate.
1: Well, this is the problem, and it kind of ties in with today's topic. And if we analyze... Uh, the issues at, at, where you have these personalities or these businesses as they really are. Um, these are the corporations, not me, not you. Um, the, the corporations are these, these individuals that have um, financial interest and stakes in this. And Chipotle Company is another good example, how they ban GMOs, right? That's very visible against GM uh, technology, genetic engineering technology. Yet... They um still have high fructose corn syrup from GE corn in their uh soda fountain and they still have genetically engineered rennets in their cheese. And I um they, I've reached out to them last year when they were making their uh proclamations about their free from biotechnology and asked them about this and never got a hard answer. And that's how I got introduced to today's guest. So today we're going to be talking to um or what was what would be what would be your take on uh, the honesty in that proclamation that we don't use GMOs?
3: From Chipotle, I think it's, it's sheer hypocrisy. Um, I, I've actually written about this once, but, I mean, like you said, they, they use uh, the, the genetically engineered rennet in their cheese, and they use the corn syrup. But the main reason that they say that they went GMO-free, it says on their website, is because glyphosate was declared a carcinogen by the IARC. So then you would imagine that when the IARC declared uh, red meat uh, on, on their list of carcinogens that Chipotle should drop red meat. But I digress. (laughs) <laughs>
1: but so did they. <laughs> and I, I do think that it was an incredible blow to their credibility that when you decide, you come out as a company and say, we reject science and are going to make a business decision to reject science, and then you start having food bur- outbreaks of food poisoning, it makes me wonder that, okay, well, maybe this is a corporate culture that we're going to reject the science that we find inconvenient. And whether that's the ingredients in our food or the way we sanitarily handle food, we're not going to do what food safety and what scientists, food experts in food safety or science say, we've got our own agenda and we're going to roll with that. And I think it, I think that it is part, it has that cultural feel to me. And I do, uh, I think they did just kind of duck away from all this just to let it die down. But the beauty of this is that it did stir up uh, Levi Gady. And Levi Gady is a graduate student in uh, Berkeley, California, in neuroscience, who wrote a wonderful article on Gizmodo last year on uh, genetically engineered enzymes in the rennets of cheese. So these are the... uh, Actually, you know what? We'll just let him explain it to us. Hey. Yeah, there he is. So Levi is, uh, as I mentioned, he's a graduate student at University of California, Berkeley. He's in uh, neurobiology. Um, So tell us a little bit about your project, if you can.
4: All right, so um, even though I'm in the the neuroscience program, uh, my project actually is a little bit more along the lines of developmental biology. I study adult neural stem cells, and they're kind of an underappreciated form of adult neural stem cells that are found in your nose. So actually, unlike the rest of the adult nervous system, the nose produces new neurons even late into adult life, um, making it kind of a a nice store for, for neurons that might someday be used for therapy. So I'm trying to understand the adult stem cells that produce these neurons um, with the hopes of again someday being able to harvest them say in a parkinson's patient and replant them back in the brain
1: Oh cool so does that have to do with uh, phenomena like olfactory like olfactory um, uh, mechanism turnover like uh, you know like we know that the receptors and uh, other entities in the hardware of olfaction could be um Irreversibly harmed in some cases, and is that just a a function of this mechanism?
4: It's kind of related, although I don't know if they are, let's say, causally related. So um, while I'm studying, you know, how these stem cells divide and how they generate neurons, the question of like what receptors they express and how they wire back into the brain is like almost an entirely separate question. Um, I don't know if that that helps clarify, but it's kind of an understudied field.
1: No, it it sounds really cool. Why don't why don't um you know put me on your calendar for like uh 2021 and maybe we can revisit this. Uh, are you busy at like 10:30 on the 20 and <laughs> I just I like to book these things in advance. <laughs> so why don't um why don't we so we go back to your gizmodo article about uh cheese and its components and how how cheese is made and most of all this genetically engineered component. How did you get fired up about that subject?
4: So a few years back, I was getting very intrigued by the whole GMO debate. Um, And I was trying to become more of a science communicator. And the first big article I wrote was about the potential of CRISPR-Cas9 to revolutionize the genetic modification of agriculture. Um, And while I was doing my research for that, I stumbled across this kind of surprising statistic that the vast majority of cheese in America was being made using enzymes sourced from GMOs, and I thought to myself, this is weird, like, you know, I have so many friends who are perhaps in a a sort of naive way very frightened by GMOs, yet if they're eating cheese, most likely it's dependent on genetic engineering. So that was how it started, and once I dug a little bit, I realized I had a pretty cool story
1: and it is pretty cool. So when you're eating cheese and I you're you're actually eating and I don't know how to make cheese. For me making cheese means you cut the plastic off the slice, you know. Um right. if you're um making cheese, how do you how, are the bacteria that are used in the or the enzymes that are used in the uh in the rennet process? Uh are those enzymes the only thing that's genetically modified, or are there perhaps some of the bacteria that it comes from, or how do they purify that component? Tell us a little bit about the cheese-making process.
4: Right. So, in general, what you need to to make a hard cheese, say like cheddar, is that you need the, the milk that goes into that cheese to first be broken down so it can coagulate. And so, no matter what you're doing, whether you're using rennet that's sourced from animals, whether you're using genetically modified rennet or you're using something, say, from a plant or something that's naturally found in a microbe, those enzymes just break down the milk, allow it to coagulate, and then you filter out those, milk, those, those cheese curds um, and kind of press it into a cheese.
3: So so you mentioned um, getting it from animals. Where, where have humans obtained, um, obtained these enzymes uh, classically?
4: So, the lining of the fourth stomach of ruminant animals, like cows, sheep, and goats, contains high levels of this enzyme called chymosin in the young animals that haven't been weaned. And this allows them to digest their mother's milk. Um, And there's this kind of, like, popular urban legend that states that, perhaps thousands of years ago, some Arabian merchant, like, wandering through the desert, uh, stored some of his milk in a young animal's stomach and one day was surprised to find little bits of delicious cheese floating in that milk. Um, this is really just an urban legend, and there's no actual evidence of like the exact moment when people discovered cheese in this way, but there's evidence that cheese making is probably up to 10,000 years old. Um, there are cheese sieves that have been unearthed by archaeologists in Poland that were dated back to be 7,000 years old. And there are 3,500-year-old cheese remnants that have been found in China. Um, and so while we don't know exactly where cheese was discovered, somehow someone found little bits of cheese floating in an animal's stomach thousands of years ago. And it's been a staple of our civilization ever since.
3: Wow. Gosh. So that, that Chinese stuff is the extra age. That, that's got to be good. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'd just like like to know, what would someone be thinking to be sitting there with a cow's stomach and thinking, you know, this would make one hell of a thermos?
4: (laughs) I mean, I'm no expert, but, you know, animal stomachs, to me, seem to be very, like, you know, water and airtight containers. And so if you're traveling a long distance and you want something to keep, you want it to be in a sealed vessel. Um, And uh, I'm pretty sure that for for a lot of human history, um, animal organs were used for that purpose.
3: Outside of ethical concerns, why don't we just keep keep doing that, keep using the, the animal stomach?
4: All right, so it's worth noting that we consume a lot, a lot of cheese. Um, in the U.S., I think, alone, these days we're producing on the order of 12 billion pounds of cheese. Um, and this amount of cheese actually dates back to when the cheese industry was industrialized, which happened actually in the late 1800s. And so in the late 1800s, chemical manufacturers figured out ways to purify chymosin from animal rennet to make it more easy to to distribute and make it more efficient in like a factory sort of setting for cheese production. Um, And so by the 1970s, you can imagine um, American the American appetite for cheese had, had risen even further. And at this time, also, uh, kind of public displeasure over the treatment of veal calves kind of skyrocketed. And in the late 70s, the, the veal industry essentially collapsed. And when the veal industry collapsed, this really limited the availability of rennet. Um, I, I, I think I should note here that there's something very specific about what changed after veal production crashed. Um, So veal calves are a byproduct of the dairy industry. And dairy cows must give birth once a year in order to to lactate. And this produces both male calves and female calves that have no clear destiny. Only female calves could someday produce milk, but even they are born so frequently that the dairy industry must divert them towards other uses. And for a long time, dairy calves were raised to be a few months old and then sold as veal, a scheme that provided plenty of calf stomachs for rennet, So once veal was demonized, those calves from the dairy industry were no longer raised for veal. And so now our chymosin comes from these genetically engineered microbes that produce the calf chymosin protein in large quantities. So instead of investing in raising a veal calf for a few months, rennet companies can produce this fermentation-produced chymosin, or FPC, by growing up these microbes in a large vat. And this totally circumvents the process of sacrificing a young animal for a small amount of one of its stomachs. However, the same number of dairy calves still die um, early in life because they are necessary for the dairy industry. So we aren't saving lives per se, but the environmental cost of raising an animal for a little bit of enzyme is far greater than the environmental cost of growing that same enzyme in a microbe.
1: Yeah, I guess it's one step at a time. You know, you uh, you know, at least they're, we're not... Uh, raising veal animals for months on end, and like you say, the cost of raising the animal. Um, but w- when did this first start? When when did the uh, microbes producing chymosin? When did that f- first become uh, in vogue?
4: So this actually stretches back to to really the dawn of genetic engineering in the late seventies, um, when a handful of researchers. Uh, were actually able to, what is called, transform a bacterial strain using a foreign gene. Um, and the foreign gene that was used in this proof of principle was the gene for insulin. And so in 1978, these researchers succeeded with getting bacteria to express insulin, which is a gene found in animals, not bacteria. And By 1982, Genentech, which was founded by one of these initial early genetic engineers, Genentech received approval to actually sell this insulin that was being produced by bacteria. And so within uh, just eight years, so by 1990, Pfizer received FDA approval to make chymosin, again, the enzyme in rennet, for food production. So 1990 is the year that a GMO enzyme became you know approved for us to eat
3: that is they are my personal heroes then <laughs> oh, yeah. so um today how much how much of our cheese is is derived from this g microbial produced rennet
4: so it depends on who you ask and it also is is probably a number that 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 wobbles every year but it's definitely over 75 percent um Some manufacturers, like Kraft, have said on record that some animal rennet might be used in their cheeses, but it's really hard to say. The labeling of rennet is unregulated, and most of the time you'll only find something like enzymes on the ingredients list with no clarification. Um, As another example, uh, Tillamook, which is another American cheese company, uh, openly states on their website that they use fermentation-produced chymosin in most of their cheeses, and they save the an- animal rennet for just some of their specialty aged cheeses. Um, some sources claim that over 90% of the world's cheese is made with FPC.
1: That's funny, because uh, i actually... Uh, Vern Blazik was from Tillamook, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was. Which you know, uh, you. he's he's not here today. Otherwise, I'd have him chime in. Um, <laughs> um, so, but how? What are the? How is the FPC really made today? And and is it something that people feel, you know, in the general consensus, is this really a GMO? And what are the? Where are the sources of the genes? And what kind of microbes are they using to grow them?
4: Right. Um, so today there are a variety of FPCs that you can buy in bulk from a small group of these industrial chemical manufacturers. Um, the most prominent that I've heard of is a a Danish company called Christian Hansen, and there's also another company called DSM, which is Dutch. Um, and these two companies are amongst the few that grow up these GMO microbes, um, and the two that I've heard of that are most used are K lactis and A Niger, um, and then they basically just purify out the enzymes, concentrate them, and quality control them before shipping them to cheese manufacturers worldwide. Um, Christian Hansen even makes FPCs that are more efficient than cow chymosin, including one that relies on a camel chymosin gene. So clearly, they're doing R and D into better variants of mammalian chymosin that are super efficient. Um, I don't think they've directly engineered the calf or chymosin genes for their current FPC offerings in the sense of genetic en- uh, editing, but with the advent of CRISPR-Cas9 in the last couple years, I wouldn't be surprised to see gene-edited FPCs in the future that can make cheese way more efficiently than the normal variants of the chymosin gene.
1: Yeah, it should, probably should chime in with those two things: *K. lactis* and uh, *A. niger*. Uh, you know, the first one's uh, *Clavomycetes lactis*, which is uh, it's a um, uh, lactose fermenting fungus, and then the other one is *Aspergillus niger*, which is again a, a fungus. So now we're using fungal um, vectors to create these enzymes from cow, camel genes, whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, nobody seems to really care. There's no I, I, I didn't really see the march against Christian Hansen.
3: <laughs> no, you didn't.
4: And the truth is that the whole dairy industry has done a good job of sticking to this line that FPC is not a GMO. And they're kind of right. FPC is just the enzyme. It's the byproduct of these genetically modified organisms. And once you really purify it out for cheese production, you don't want any of that original fungus in your your cheese production pipeline, right? So it doesn't actually contain the GMO. It doesn't contain the DNA. Um, and this is something the dairy industry is open about if you go to their websites and read about it, right? Um, it's also worth noting that FPC can't be used in organic cheese, which is something that, again, the dairy industry does not hide. So instead, organic cheeses have to be made with animal rennet or perhaps with these lesser enzymes found in plants or fungi, which produce less tasty cheeses.
1: Well, let me, let me jump in there on something. And yeah. that, that might be just kind of the funny hypocrisy, because sure, the enzyme is produced by a genetically engineered organism. That's cool. And, but, and there's no sign of the gene or the protein um, in the final. Well, there's protein is in the final product. So right. the, the genetically engineered product is in the final cheese. Yes. At the same time, something like sucrose that comes from a genetically engineered sugar beet, or high fructose corn syrup that comes from corn, there's probably very little of the protein or the DNA. It's even less GMO than the cheese. Yes. And yet that is, folks are demanding labels and going crazy. Even in Vermont, cheese is exempt.
4: Correct. And, um, so, I mean, it's hard to not see the special treatment of cheese in these labeling laws as hypocrisy. Um, like I said, the the dairy industry has done a good job of sticking to this consistent line that their products don't contain GMOs. Um, interestingly, another example of, of that kind of line of reasoning can be found in this startup that some of you may have heard of called Real Vegan Cheese, which is attempting to actually create um, a milk synthetic pathway in yeast. And they also claim that because they're their dream product of this non animal based milk wouldn't contain the original GMOs, that that milk is not a GMO. Um, and so, something that I actually am still very curious about is how the dairy industry was able to s- sneak in these exemptions from the labeling bills while the corn industry, which I presume has plenty of sway, failed to get those exemptions. And I must say, I use the word sneak because the GMO naysayers do have a point when they criticize the corporate influence of our food policies, which is a textbook example of conflict of interest. But these naysayers don't really take this to the logical conclusion of their own critique, which is that our food policies should be shaped by scientists and perhaps doctors, not by either companies or the general public. So I I can't help but wonder if the dairy industry might tip the conversation towards a more rational place if they came clean... And explained to all their consumers how FPC has allowed for a more environmentally friendly cheese production.
3: It just seems like convenience, especially uh, for example, the state of Vermont, where where cheese isn't a small industry, and maybe exactly. that. I mean, then we also are going. We could say the same thing about restaurants who are exempt from from labeling. Against again, it's convenience. So
4: right, and it's it's also the fact that. I I think that there's a lot of hypocrisy in general in how we talk about GMOs and how we regulate them. Um, And so, as I mentioned, I became interested in this a few years back when I was one of many people who who foresaw the use of gene editing with CRISPR-Cas9 as being a potential game changer for, for genetically modified crops. And almost on cue this year, the first... Uh, agricultural product, a button mushroom, was greenlit by the FDA as a non-GMO product even though it had been genetically modified using CRISPR-Cas9. And the FDA basically said that this mushroom, since it didn't contain foreign DNA, it was technically not a GMO even though it was genetically modified. And so you can't really escape this hypocrisy in how we talk about how we re- uh, and how we talk about and how we regulate our food that's grounded in biotechnology, even when it works in favor of biotechnology,
1: right?
3: And and yet the very similar uh, apple, the Arctic apple, is considered a GMO because of the process. Although right. it has a similar non-browning uh, trait.
4: Exactly. Yes, they're both non-browning products, and one of them is gene edited. One of them contains a trans gene. They're both modified and only one of them is being currently considered by the FDA as a GMO.
3: I think I might know your answer to this, but do you think people need to know what kind of rennet was used in the making of their cheese? I mean, uh, some vegetarians might take issue with the insertion of animal DNA into the microbes, but I guess in that case, shouldn't they also take issue with the fact that the milk comes from animals? I mean, how, how much of a right to know is there... Uh, if there's a right to know whether our food is GMO, which is, which is a huge debate, debate then yeah. what about the rennet?
4: I'd say that in general, I, I think that people do have the right to know. They should be able to look up the source of what they're eating, right? Um, I, it's actually kind of frustrating. When I was researching this article last year and I was you know looking at different cheeses that I could buy in the supermarket... You can't actually see, based on the ingredients list, what kind of chymozin was used. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it is something of a personal preference, how much information you'd want, and there isn't really much of a, an honest difference to anyone's health whether your cheese was made using FPC or animal rennet. Um, but I, I also I, I, I would like to reiterate your point about this, this funny thing of vegetarian cheese, um, something that I think the, the, the vegan uh, movement is very familiar with, which is the fact that the dairy industry is dependent on the killing of animals. You can't have millions and millions of cows producing milk without killing off older dairy cows. So I, I think that's also, again, one of these like intrinsic hypocrisies in how we play, place ethical judgments on our food production.
1: Oh, it really! Just opened up so many uh, interesting avenues to think about here because there's uh, because for, well, for me, for instance, I think about the enzyme. If I can't tell the difference between the animal one that comes out of a cow's stomach and the one that comes from a bacterium, if the two are identical, then why does it matter if it which one's in the cheese? You know, and I guess that's where folks yes. have these ethical overlays of you know thinking about the next level and that that doesn't phase me you know i mean i don't get too weird about that but other people i understand how they would be concerned and i'm glad you raised those points
3: what's your favorite kind of cheese levi
4: lately i've been really enjoying a a cheese that doesn't require chymosin, which is paneer Ooh. yeah paneer is nice and soft so you don't actually need chymosin to to break it down to coagulate into a harder cheese
1: how does that work though? When you have paneer, I mean, I eat that stuff all the time. I didn't know it was uh, chymosin less. It, does it just coagulate naturally upon standing, or what's the trick?
4: So I haven't done this myself, but I've heard that you can actually make paneer at home just using a little bit of like an acid, like, uh, like lemon juice or vinegar or something.
1: Ah, Ugh. okay. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah you're using acid to denature the, the proteins rather than an enzyme.
4: Yep, exactly.
1: So, uh, Levi, your, your your name is can be a little bit deceiving, and I'd like to get people who would like to follow you to get it right. So your articles are written under uh, Gady, G-A-D-Y-E, like Brett Correct. Favre, right? You have to switch <laughs> there. Um, and uh, where can people find you on social media or read other uh, work that you've done?
4: Right. So So right now, unfortunately, I don't have a website, but you can definitely follow me on Twitter. You can search for my name. Uh, My Twitter handle is a little bit of an interesting portmanteau. It's the Empiri kind of like if you connected the first few letters of empirical, Empiri, with asylum, um, which kind of reflects how I sometimes feel when I dig into something like GMOs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How well put. What about you, Coven? Where can we find you?
3: Well, my Twitter handle is not nearly as interesting. It's just at KSynopathy, and you can also follow my public uh, page on Facebook. My personal one is quite boring. My public one has a blue check mark. And then you can read my work on Forbes.com and a few other places.
1: Well, thank you very much to both of you for joining me in Docking Biotech Podcast, learning a little bit more about cheese and where that stuff comes from and the uh, enzymes that come through a genetically engineered process. Thank you very much for joining me.
3: Thank, thank you.
1: you. And that's Coven Synopathy and Levi Gating talking all about cheese. And we'll be right back in just a few moments with some thoughts on the recent NAS study. We'll be right back with more Bio... We'll We'll be right back with more Talking Biotech.
2: This week marks a milestone in Talking Biotech history as someone out there will be the 200,000th download. That's pretty exciting when we look at the numbers, there are more downloads every week. Except for that coffee or papaya one, those went off the charts. Now lots of you ask, what can I do to help? And the answer is still the same. Tell a friend, write a review on iTunes, or run down the street in your town naked, screaming Talking Biotech Podcasts. I did that, and soon a number of law enforcement and mental health care professionals were acquainted with the podcast, and now our loyal listeners. It's all about sharing the stories of science, and how technology can help people and the planet. So thank you again for listening, and now, back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And back to the Talking
1: Biotech Podcast. Uh, you know, it is kind of a down day for me. I mean, it's the second Friday in a row. I usually record this on a Friday night, Saturday morning. And it's the second Friday night in a row that I've received a uh, Freedom of Information Act fulfillment. So in other words, when you ask my... Uni- oh, th- the music is rocking out and it's distracting me. It's unbelievable. It's great. Anyway, Um When you send the university the request to harvest my emails and pass them along to you, they do all of that without me really knowing it. And um, I get a report saying, you know, this will be released to the requester on Monday or Tuesday of next week. So they're really lickety split at uh, fulfilling the requests of those who wish to see my stuff. And so they give me basically the weekend to take a peek at it, which is a bummer because you sit with... What happens to me is they'll give it to me at four o'clock on a Friday, now two weeks in a row, and uh, you sit with your finger on the little scroll button of the mouse going through each email, and with each one, thinking on one side, well, there's nothing here, but on the other side, your brain is trying to think as the activist that wants to destroy your career, and you kind of start to um, unravel yourself because you start to think you know all, it's really hard to think of think like somebody who is evil. It takes a lot of energy. But this is what um, what I've been up to the last two Fridays has been a completely unnerving and absolutely horrible to do. but uh, needless to say um, that I think it's the third request in four weeks that we've fulfilled. They've got plenty of stuff that I turn over in the uh, interest of transparency and um, we'll see how they elect to proceed. So the the, uh, good news is that last week we saw the National Academies of Science. So the National Academies of Science is one of the nation's most esteemed if not the most esteemed scientific organization. And to get into the National Academies of Science you have to be elected by your peers and it's a very difficult Uh, road to get there. It takes decades of consistent scientific publication and participation in the discipline that you have to demonstrate excellence for years. Um, I would say probably 1% of scientists are even considered. It is a tough place to get in. and The reason is is because the National Academies has leaned on for synthesis of contemporary issues. They've published outstanding uh, statements about Climate change. They've dis- they've discussed many social issues and many science well scientific issues that are a uh, debate socially, yet not in science. And over the last two years, they've taken on genetically engineered foods, and uh, they've interviewed everyone from Jeffrey Smith to uh, uh, John Entine to a suite of scientists. So people who are anti GMO activists to journalists to folks who are very knowledgeable inside science, and they, they didn't solicit the um, strangely the uh, opinions of folks like me who have been immersed in this area for a long time and I think it was to give the folks like Jeffrey Smith a say so that they could discuss uh, the anti gMO side without the not without the interference of the people who have traditionally taken a stand for the pro-science side and maybe refer to um, or defer to just scientists in general. You know, let's just pick up folks who have some thoughts in these specific areas, which is good because I'm not a scientist who works on genetically engineered food. Um, I'm a scientist who works on how you use light in vertical farming. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Um, I'm a scientist who studies how you make fruits and vegetables taste better with uh, traditional breeding. So I'm not necessarily the best candidate for that panel that convened around National Academies. But what did they find? And one of the most exciting things is is that they've discovered what we already knew. And what we've heard from the National Academies is that these products pose no more risk than conventional breeding, that there are minimal effects on yield, which we've already known, What's really interesting about that is that the uh, anti-GMO movement says, aha, there's no increase in yield. Well, we never installed a yield gene. Or I shouldn't say that. We haven't approved or deregulated a yield-associated gene. There are genes we could put in that would increase yields through the roof. However, right now, corn and soy prices are pretty cheap. And do farmers or seed companies really want more yield? What they want is savings on the farm. What they want is lowered environmental impact. And so they want to use the products like um, glyphosate that allows them to use less labor, less fuel, cheaper herbicides that have less environmental impact. That's what they use. In terms of the BT crops, the ones that produce their own insect protection, You don't have to spend the money on insecticides. And that was demonstrated beautifully in the NAS report. And this is really important because it says this is what farmers want. It's not about yield. It's about maintaining the yield. It's about keeping the same thing with less input. It's about preserving and protecting your yield. And that's what GM crops do best, at least at this juncture, at least for our big agronomic crops, which are the only ones that can really uh, become deregulated, except for papaya and squash, which got through in the late 1990s. The other thing we learned from the NAS report was that there are absolutely no credible instances of harm to health, and they did this in a couple of different ways. First, they examined the claims that there were, and they also looked at the evidence that there wasn't. And then they did one other thing, and they looked at the epidemiological comparisons of places where GM crops are freely consumed by humans and places where they aren't, and there's no differences. There's zero evidence to suggest that there was some kind of uh, change or some kind of risk associated with these particular products. They also were very um, wise to point out the shortcomings of the technology. And we do see herbicide-resistant weeds. We do see um, insect, uh, the Bt, the uh, plant protection chemicals, Bt, that uh, the plant makes. There are insects resistant to the technologies that are installed in the plant. We've known this forever. We predicted it. I mean, I remember thinking back in the mid-90s, if they do this, there's going to be resistant weeds in a few years. And I was wrong, because it took a decade before you really started to see it. It worked out amazingly well, and if we would have had a more diverse uh, co- um, set of traits, then we would not have seen the same level of uh, resistance that we did. So, yes, there are strengths and weaknesses, just like I've always said. And that's what the National Academies report really reinforced. It's that everything that the honest scientists have always said, that sure, here are the things it does well, here are the things we have to be careful with. It just confirmed exactly what we've been telling you for all this time. The biggest thing that happened that I thought was really eye-opening was the response to the report. Uh, The you know, regular media that is typically kind of lazy said, oh, look, it's harmless. It doesn't mean anything. And I don't think that was particularly, or particularly helpful. Um, they said, oh, no danger from GM crops. And I don't know that that was the best way to, or they said GM crops are safe. And I don't know that that was exactly the best way that they could have handled that. I think what we got from a synthesis from this was there's no evidence of harm. Could there be something that comes up in the future? Absolutely. And if someone were to create a product that would have harmful implications, that one product and that one technology and that one gene should be scrutinized and removed from the market, or actually would never get there. But the technology overall, you can't judge with a sweeping statement. You can't do it as a critic. You can't do it as someone who really endorses the technology. So a headline that says GM crops are safe? I don't like that headline. A a, uh, headline that says that these are dangerous? I don't like that one either. Neither are hitting the nail on the head because this isn't one thing. This isn't a monolith. This is a series of technologies that scientists can devise to solve problems for planets and people. Well, one planet. Maybe in the future other planets, but in general, just and this is how you know I don't work from a script because I say stupid things now and then. So there you go. One of the things that I thought was really surprising was the <laughs> was the anti GMO response. I think it was the night before I wrote, and now you'll hear that everybody's a bought off Monsanto shill. In three, two, one, dot, dot, dot. And the next day, I got a. Ne- <laughs> thing on twitter that said 15 seconds uh food and water watch came out right away and said well obviously this is an industry sponsored report that comes from industry scientists who have no interest in the truth and what was really funny about that was that how can even and is how fast that message picked up and resonated that this was an industry outcome dictated by industry for industry and that just blew me away because national academies of science I mean, these are the people who, if there's one body on this planet who's going to stand up and say no to industry, this would be it. Actually, there's a lot of people who would. I know I would. You know, I don't really care what they tell me. You know, we're going to tell the truth and we're going to tell facts and we're going to talk about evidence. And, uh, you know, my my integrity and my reputation is much more important than any check that industry could cut me. And, And... I'll stand by that forever. I mean, there's no way I would ever sell out. And it's funny because there's people who are wired that way. And when people ask me, well, who, who are these people who say that, you know, everybody in science is a shill, that they're all people who would sell out in a moment? Um, those are people who would sell out. <laughs> those are people who are very comfortable with the idea of compromising their personal integrity for a gift. I don't know. That's not part of me. Um, I'm in this to do good things for people in the planet and to train students and to advance science. That's why I'm here. And uh, that's uh, the mission that I'm on. And I'm so grateful that I have this conduit that's picked up by an awful lot of people. Um, We've been getting a lot of hits lately, so thank you for that. It's been a long time since I've spent the time to do a personal message, and this review of the NAS report really was a great time to reconnect with at that level. So, thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. If you'd like to do me a favor, go over to um, iTunes and uh, write, a, write a review. Um, give it as many stars as you think we deserve. I personally like a few. Um, <laughs> the reason why is important is that when you uh, we have a bad name Uh, the name talking biotech podcast infers that this is all about biotechnology when really if you go through our episodes it's about the amazing stories of plant domestication it's about genetic improvement of plants it's all the outstanding stories that bring food to our plates we can do a lot more and more readership or more listenership gets us there so uh, give it a good review or not, I don't care. Give it the review you think it deserves, and um, let others be attracted to this to this forum. It's really cool because we are moving up in the iTunes charts, and the better reviews, the more stars, and uh, the more listenership, the higher we go. So my name's Kevin Fulto Thank you so much for listening. Please tell a friend, write a review. And we'll listen to you, or no, you'll listen to me. (laughs) You see, this is how you know it's not a script. (laughs) Uh, I'll talk to you again next week on Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.